Sold! On today's Judd's Napa Valley show, we welcome auctioneer extraordinaire Fritz Hatton. He's in the studio to drop his gavel on us, and I, I don't think that's a euphemism for anything. But he's got a great story about involving himself in the world of wine and the great excitement that's involved in auctioning off wine. And you're going to dig it. You're going to dig it. It's a fun time, and he's a great personality. In the meantime, come visit me. We've got some personality over at Judd's Hill. Go to Judd'sHill.com for visiting information. You can come say hey and drop in at our family winery at the south end of the beautiful Silverado Trail here in Napa Valley. And uh, while you're online, look around. Have a look at some great food and wine pairing recipes. Check out our wine-related poetry. And definitely have a look at our quirky and funny videos. And, you know, why not? Put a little, uh, put a little wine in your shopping cart. As a special perk for being a listener, type in coupon code JNVS in lowercase letters. Judd's Napa Valley Show, that's what that stands for, JNVS. And get 15% off your entire wine order. Not bad. Want a better deal? Okay, why not? Join our Judd's Hill Wine Club. You can do that online or you can give us a call. It's free to join and you're going to have a good time. You're going to get wine. You're going to get invitations to events. You're going to get all kinds of special perks. I guarantee a good time. From me to you, that's my promise. Now, in the meantime, enjoy today's show. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Every episode, a veritable cornucopia of finkel fun. Get ready for another heapful of fascinating things to know from witty and intriguing people on Judd's Napa Valley Show. No stale script and no rehearsing, live from a Napa studio. You may be that intriguing person on Judd's Napa Valley Show. On Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa, Judd's Napa Valley, Judd's Napa Valley Show. And now, live from the historic studios of Broadcast Park, entertaining Nappin since 1948, here's our host for Judd's Napa Valley Show, Chad Fingelstein. Good morning, Lauren. Well, I think you left one of your participles dangling there. Have I, have I really been, I don't know, Grammar, I just made that up, but have I really been entertaining people since 1948? Sadly, no. No. You mean the, the station has? The station has. Ah, yes. The historic broadcast park here in Napa. I'm not quite that mature. You, sir, have been up to some good stuff. What's going on? It's been a while since I've seen you. We took the last couple weeks off. We're back. But what's been going on? You've got exciting things. You're holding something to announce. Tell me everything. Well, first, I just want to say that uh, I just got back boating with the family. Oh, great. Where'd you go? Uh, we went boating along the McCollumby River on the California Delta. I know it well. We get some, um, a little bit of Zinfandel from out there. It's a beautiful right. area. Yeah, we took off from, uh, from B&W Resort in, uh, in Isleton. Yeah. It's an annual family tradition, and I've been going there since September 1991, since I was three months old. I was going to say, that's right about the time you were born, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. Wow, every year. And is it a day trip? Is it an overnight trip? How far do you go? Uh, it only takes about an hour to, to get there, and it goes by quick. Well, on the boat, though, how long do you spend on the boat? Uh, about 65 minutes. Okay, so it's a little excursion. That sounds fun. It is. Very good, very Always good. Always enjoy it. Wonderful. I'm glad you got to do it. Do a little fishing, or you just kind of uh, relax and enjoy the ride? Uh, sadly, no fishing. No fishing. Just enjoy the ride. Good. How nice. I was out there uh, a couple weeks ago. If folks go onto our Judd's Hill Instagram page, you'll see photos. I took our 
our wine pirate, Captain Wiley Raven out there, and we recreated the old Madeira voyages. We talked about this with Tim Hanai the other week. Instead of loading up these barrels of Madeira-style wine that we've made onto a ship and having it sail around the horn, we put it in the back of a truck and circumnavigated the Delta. <laughs> but we had a pirate with us, which made it, I don't know, weird? <laughs> fun. Fun. I'll say that. It made it fun. And now we're ready to... A treasure island-ish. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Anyhow, what yeah. have you got there? You're yeah. about to... Sure. But anyway, it was, yes. a, it was an overall success, and we look forward to next year. Wonderful. And also, I'd like to mention to everybody uh, that uh, next month is actually National Disability Employment Awareness Month. So uh, the event uh, that I will be uh, emceeing, not the whole thing, though, just the opening and the closing. Okay, so don't miss the start of this one. Yes, or the end. <laughs> uh, it's called Breakfast with the Mayors, and this will be held uh, from 8 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. at Chardonnay Golf Club, 2555 Jameson Canyon Road uh, in American Canyon on Thursday, October the 1st. And what happens here? Bre- uh, breakfast with the mayors. I assume there's some mayors there? Uh, yes. Mayor... Mick Cheese, uh, Mayor... Uh, mayor Jill Teckle. Oh, uh, local mayors. Uh, American Canyon and Calistoga mayors. Wonderful. Yeah, and uh, other employers who are employing uh, uh, people with disabilities like myself. Great. And if folks want to come to this, is there a website or a phone number for information? I'm checking the, the paper right now. Okay. I mean, well, it, it is open to the public. That's wonderful. So I assume a simple Google search, Breakfast with the Mayors, Napa Valley, 2015. Yes. Great. Well, good. Congratulations on getting that gig. Do you have some material worked up? Are you going to tell some jokes, sing a song, anything like that? Sadly, no jokes and sadly, no song. But you'll do a stand-up job, not stand-up comedy, but stand-up as in doing very well, introducing the mayors, introducing the day. I'm sure I will. It's going to be great. Giving some purpose to the proceedings. Of course. Wonderful. So uh, what, what's been going on with you, Judd? Anything going on over at the winery? Well, sure. It's harvest time. We're, we're wrapping it up. Surely it's amazing how quickly this harvest has gone by and how early we started. Right now, we're not quite into October. And I think we only have one more lot of Cabernet to bring in. And normally, we don't even start picking until the middle of October. So we're, we're early. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, things look good, tasting good so far. It was a nice, long, hot growing season. Just wrapping it up. So now I can uh, turn my attention to more, much more important things like decorating the house for Halloween and that type of thing. I see. Yeah. There's something going on tonight. This very evening over at City Winery in Napa is the Community Resources for Children's Tiki for Tots benefit event. And that's open to the public if you look up uh, Community Resources for Children. Tiki for Tots, there's live Hawaiian music from Monaleo, from Jimmy Duhigg on slack key guitar. I'm going to go over there with my ukulele and strum a few tunes. There's going to be tropical drinks, poopoos galore. That means appetizers in Hawaiian, folks. Ah. A a wine pull, a silent auction, all that good stuff. And that's happening tonight from 5 to 8. It's on the early side. So come on by. And then we mentioned this last week, our Judd's Hill Wine Club. I've put together an amazingly uh, and mis- amazing and mysterious dinner at Hollywood's Magic Castle for October 10th. Uh, it is now sold out. I know some folks were asking about that. We're sold out. So next year, if you're not in our wine club, you ought to be, right? And uh, you can do fun things like this with us, and we will for sure do it again. That's always a popular thing. I don't want to get too much into, uh, into the details. I mean, harvest, all that good stuff. But we have somebody here who's just amazing and has a great story to tell. Many, in fact. And I would like to now introduce him, not take him up any more time with this lollygagging or jabbering on 
Or, okay, you get the picture. Let's introduce our guest, shall we? Well, it's about time we revealed his identity on the air. <laughs> Indeed. Our guest speaks a strange tongue. It's auctioneer, not Latin. In this role, it's his job to get wallets to flatten while helping the coffers of charities fatten. He's also a vintner, making wines smooth as satin. For this show today, the hatches will batten. As we welcome the inimitable Mr. Fritz Hatton. Hey, Fritz, how are you? Good to see you. <laughs> I'm great, Lauren. <laughs> Fritz. Well, well written and well spoken. <laughs> He's a pro. He's a pro. <laughs> Fritz Hatton, man, it's good to see you. You are well known throughout the wine community here in Napa Valley and beyond as the wine auctioneer. We see you at so many events, including the you know incredible auction Napa Valley, Premier Napa Valley, on and on and on. And this is your persona that folks know. But today, my goal is to get inside the mind of Fritz Hatton. Who are you, really? Let's let's find out who this man is. Are you ready to explore yourself <laughs> live on the air? Here <laughs> <laughs> on Judd's couch? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, well, uh, being an auctioneer is a little bit of a double-edged sword for me because uh, I'm also a vintner with my yeah. wife. We own a winery called Arietta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to get people to focus on the fact that uh, that is actually our main line of business could be a little difficult when I'm up there dancing around on the on the auction stage trying to uh, get people to support their their favorite causes well, sure, a little bit more than they might otherwise be inclined to do, and that's my job as an auctioneer. Uh, but in fact, uh, my uh Business life is split very much between auctioneering and being a vintner yeah. and co-owning with my wife a winery that produces, that is no hobby, it produces 3,000 <laughs> to 3,500 cases of, uh, of wine uh, every year. So, But it's interesting wearing the multiple hats. Yeah. <clears throat> I have short attention span sometimes, so I need variety. And it's sort of a hedge, too, to being a vintner and then also being a Charity wine auctioneer, as well as a commercial wine auctioneer. So there's, there's three. as well as a musician, as well as I mean, you're a multifaceted fella. Well, I mean, that's the other passion, really. Wine yeah. and wine and music. That's what it's boiled down to for me, along with my the ladies in my life, <laughs> my wife, and my daughters, and not to mention the uh, uh, 32 animals that we now have in our 32 uh, animals in, in, in our. Are you building in, a big in the home? Are you building a big boat somewhere? Are you expecting some heavy rain? What's going on? Well, I think on we're here? already on the ark. <laughs> <laughs> we only have a we have a quarter acre lot in St. Helena and a sixth of an acre in in Napa and all those animals, except the two horses, are crowded into those spaces. So we really live among the animals. Wow. And do you know all their names? Well, I know the I don't know all the chickens' names. So okay, seventeen gotcha. I confess, seventeen of them are chickens. <laughs> all right, all right. But the girls know all the names of the chickens, and so I will never be permitted to put them in the pot when they stop laying. No, they, they, never they do that. We're pets. We're we're in that hen house as well. We have a, a coop over at the wine room. My father designed and built. We call it. He was an architect before becoming a winemaker. So we call it our architecturally designed chicken coop. And they get old eventually. The chickens. We can never. We never have the heart to put them in the pot. We, they lay eggs, and we enjoy mm-hmm. that until. They don't lay eggs, and then they're just there for visitors to come say hi to. 
Well, ours are still laying. They're Go laying ahead. away. <laughs> the layaway plan, I guess. <laughs> You're on the layaway plan. So some of them are six years old, and we can't. I think they're all still laying. The girls really? six. can identify the uh, chicken by the egg that's laid. They all, they're all wow. different chickens. The, the, each chicken lays a slightly different color or a different sized egg. It's, it's kind of like a, a, it's its own painterly palette. Are you training collect them? the eggs? Are they in the future farmers of uh, America with them or 4-H or? And well, not really. No. I mean, they, they they sort of ought to be in a way, but uh, they're just doing it themselves. Yeah. Well, I think it's my wife too. She said when I thought two kids was enough. She said, "Well, you better get ready for the farm." <laughs> so <laughs> she was, she was not fooling. <laughs> and you got it, man. Are you out to pasture? Not yet. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about your background, and then we'll get back to present-day happenings, because um, I'm just really interested. You're, you're not a local guy. You didn't grow up, grow up here in Napa Valley. This isn't no, this your is... original home. I mean, obviously, you are part of the community and well-respected and regarded here now, but where do you come from? I'm actually a, a Midwesterner. Yeah? So I am a Michigander or Michigoose oh, yeah. or Michigosh. Yeah. What are you, Michigosh? The maybe? Yiddish, <laughs> the Michigosh, right. the little crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up on a sand dune, uh, literally overlooking Lake Michigan. Oh, wow. And it was magical for about three weeks, uh, three months out of the year, rather, and pretty rough for the other nine. It's, what goes it's, on out there? Just well, it's just cold, 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 cold. Mm. Wind blowing it off the lake. Summers are magical. But I uh, was went off to school on the East Coast mm-hmm. uh, and then worked in the East Coast <clears throat> in New York for the first part of my career and then in the Far East for a little stretch and then moved to the Bay Area in 1992. So I've sort of had a balanced view of the, you know, the red states, the blue states, and the states in between. Yeah, yeah. you've been all <laughs> Having been in, uh, lived in the Midwest, the East, and now the, the West Coast. Was it the wine that brought you out here? Well, let's talk about that. How did you get into it? If you're coming from Michigan, was your family into wine and food back there, or how did you make your discovery? Well, my father was a uh, Francophile, so mm. we had uh, great wine in the home on occasion. But he would always drink it faster than he could collect it, so there never <laughs> was a stash lying around. But <laughs> yeah, certain okay. number of bottles were flying across the table, table and into the trash. So <laughs> uh, I remember back then it was hard to get good wine in Michigan. The distribution was pretty lousy, so yeah. everyone would drive to Chicago, which was about three and a half hours, and they would load up the back of their station wagons, or in some cases, uh, <clears throat> the storage compartments of their twin engine planes which they'd fly oh. in a Meg's field go to Zimmerman's load up with booze and mostly booze actually back then and some wine and bring mm-hmm. it back to Michigan and my father <clears throat> he used to tell me that this was just before I was born that a salesman would come to our house and offer him first gross for five dollars a bottle so imagine having French rather, first gross this was no Bordeaux. fuller brush man this was wow. a first growth salesman who came to his door uh, in a little town in Michigan. I'm having a hard time imagining that. It, was this someone employed by, uh, you know, the Rothschilds or somebody, or just to go around in his wagon selling wine? I'm, I'm picturing Girl Scout cookies, but you're saying first growth Bordeaux. Well, I never saw it. It was before. Okay. I, I, so it could have been one of my father's. You know, he was Irish, so it could have been a slightly tall tale. But <laughs> I do remember seeing bottles of uh, a few bottles of Lafitte. I remember 47 and 49 Lafitte and the 1955 
Chateauneuf du Pape Lagardine. I can remember those specific wines. Mm. I must have been eight or nine years old, and I remember the several cases coming in the door, and then I remember me lovingly putting each bottle down on a little rack that was located right next to the furnace. Perfect. Great storage solution right there. <laughs> well, you said your dad didn't hold on to them anyway. He wasn't storing them, right? That's correct. They were all gone within two or three weeks. <laughs> you know, those bottles don't do anybody any good sitting on the rack or in a cellar. No. And I, one of my younger brothers felt the same way because <laughs> the, my father had some Lafitte uh, in the refrigerator of all places. <laughs> Ain't it? And, <laughs> so, but, yeah, my younger brother and a couple of kids in the hood, as it were, decided mm-hmm. to open a little wine. They were slightly underage. But, and, and so they went for the Lafitte. The Lafitte disappeared. And that, that uh, anyway, was, uh, well, he was mowing a lot of lawn after that one. I'll bet. Work that up. It takes a lot to earn five bucks mowing a lawn to pay back old man, huh, for that bottle of Lafitte? So that's to, uh, just to say that I, I was aware of okay. great wine uh, a little bit, uh, even as a uh, young teenager. But I really got into wine in Michigan. I was uh, in college in the East, but I came back to work a summer job um, helping start a wine and cheese shop in uh, my hometown, uh-huh. Grand Haven, Michigan, which was sort of a Sort of even then a watering hole for people from Chicago and St. Louis. And so it's a little destination. So there were people coming in that expected to have that's, some nice wine and cheese. That's right. Yeah. So there were some summer bucks, mm-hmm. as it were. Gotcha. And that is when uh, I really fell in love with wine. I had my enological epiphany. Ooh, I like that. I always used to call it. The moment when you have that bottle of wine, which sort of sends you into the sensual ionosphere. Ooh, all right. What was the enological epiphany bottle that sent you into the sensual ionosphere. It was a bottle of Corton Clodoul on 1966. And unfortunately, I can't remember the producer now being, mm. you know, in addition to a Napa lover and producer, I'm also a Burgundy lover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are a lot of secret Burgundy lovers. They're not so secret right Gosh. here in Napa, as we know. There might be somebody raising a hand And I can't studio. remember the producer, which now is, of course, uh. would be a critical part of, you know, why the wine was so good. But that sure, was but, the bottle. But you do remember that moment. I do, sitting on my godparents' terrace, overlooking Spring Lake on a very balmy early August mm evening the kind of perfect evening in michigan where you sitting with friends and family yeah and you have a great bottle of wine uh and everything i mean the whole the moment takes on us a very special glow a sort of sense of exaltation i mean the fanciest sort of i don't know if i'm allowed to say this on the air but high go ahead you can yeah you could experience. It's a very socializing moment. It's it's led me to reduce the meaning of wine or the purpose. You know, the, what is the a dog's purpose? Remember the you know the book, a dog's purpose. Okay, yeah. what is the wine's purpose? Yeah. Well, the wine's purpose, I think, is to serve as a catalyst to socialization. Beautiful. And that's really what it's all about. It was that moment who who you were with. It wasn't just the wine itself. It's obviously, it was a wonderful wine, but it was that context. Absolutely. Well. Context, uh, the people you're with uh, is, uh, is so the, important. The weather, the mood. Well, that's right. Yeah. That's right. If you're eating, if so, what are you eating? It, it all adds up. 
I have a story about that. I've told it before on the show, so I'm not going to get into it, but it has to do with my honeymoon and a wine we had and how wonderful, and we had it back here. And Okay, it's nice, but it didn't have that magic again. But, but it was one of these moments where I just realized where it, it, the enjoyment of wine goes beyond the wine itself, and it's the text, the, the context. So you had that moment with the 1966 bottle of wine. You say it again. <laughs> um, and what would you do with that? All of a sudden, you have this experience within you. How do you go about getting that again? How'd you feed that high? Well, you spend the rest of your life trying to recreate that moment. Yeah. So or what, similar moments. So, so let's hear about the path. What, what did I steps? do? I, yeah. you know, there I've been at a wine store, and I'm in the yeah. lucky position of uh, with the <clears throat> my mentor then and the owner of the store checking the merchandise. Of course, the you must. I mean, what are we actually selling here? So we tasted quite a bit of wine and then when it was time to go back to college i loaded up seven mixed cases of wine and drove them back out and thought oh now what do i do well i just i put them in my closet so i sort of took the clothes out put the wine priorities in my closet in my room in college Hmm. And then I thought, okay, well, now how am I going to taste these? I and mean, where are you? Where are you in college? This is what we call Mother Yale. Oh, at Yale. So there probably were some other aficionados hanging around. Well, they weren't so obvious at that point. No? Of course, the age, drinking age was 18 then. So uh, this oh, was all good. legal tasting. On the up uh, and up. You could absolutely bring it into the cafeteria probably. Do they have corkage or... Well, no, this is this is what's very interesting because okay. I thought, you know, I want to drink these, I want to taste these wines, preferably while I'm eating. And uh, Well, you did do that. Right, but people didn't, there wasn't wine in the dining hall, except on no. special occasions when it was brought in for faculty student meals. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to take a bottle of wine and walk it through that line and see if anyone stops me. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and no one stopped me. I walked through the line and took it to the table and shared it around. Everyone had a half glass because this was not a party. We all had to go back and study. And so the following night, the same thing. And by the third night, I'd become a sort of pied piper. <laughs> you had a following. Fritz, where are you sitting? Where I'll are you bet. sitting? I'll bet. Good way to make friends and. uh Right, And I'm curious what some of the pairings, I can only imagine what was being served in the college cafeteria. I'm wondering what went well with the uh, you know, chicken surprise and the turkey a la king. Well, we weren't really into matching food and wine at that point. <laughs> okay. It was about tasting <laughs> the wine. The food jello was, mold. Right. We had to accept the food as it was. Uh, but then, of course, it caught on. So other kids started to bring in their bottles. And then I, then I started to see the rich kids bringing in bottles of Latash uh-huh. through the line. Oh, Very so. expensive burgundy. Yeah. And others bringing in, you know, modest bottles, which was more of the type that I had. Um, you started so something. It, yeah, it became, I don't know that I started it, but I certainly accelerated <laughs> Perfect. any trend that may have, uh, may have been there in embryonic form. But that was very much part of my life at at Yale, tasting wine, tasting. We'd have horizontal wine tastings in our rooms and line up the, you know, four Bordeaux on the mantle of the same vintage and open them up. And uh, we'd organize wine tastings among the students or sometimes student and uh, faculty members together. 
And fortunately for me, that was the era of the great wine crash, the price crash in wine, which Hmm. coincided with the oil crisis of 1974, 75, 76. I could drive into, I would drive into New York City and shop around and buy was buying second and well, third and fourth gross for two ninety nine or three ninety nine. The second gross maybe for five ninety nine. I remember La Mission Aubryon was pretty pricey at six ninety nine or seven ninety nine. Lafitte was thirteen ninety nine. Oof. And I particularly remember a sale of older wines uh, where I purchased two bottles of Margot nineteen fifty three for twenty three dollars and ninety nine cents each. Wow, a, which was a lot of money. That's a king's ransom. So that would bottle would now be three or four thousand bucks. Not in your. Um, it's well. It's 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 been well enjoyed by now. I'm saying it's not in your possession anymore. You could no. It is trade it in for tuition or that's or, right for the kids. That's right. Wow, what a start! What a start! Okay, so then where does the auctioneering come in? You have this love of wine. You've demonstrated that to the student population and faculty at Yale. Now, how do you make this your your business? How do you get into the wine biz as an auctioneer? Well, I, my life is a series of falling into things. Mm-hmm. I think I, you know, I, I, I suppose I react more than I proact. I admit that. And wine was something that I worked in when I kind of didn't know what I what my big job was going to be. So I worked periodically at retail uh, during uh, undergraduate and graduate years. And then I thought about music was my other passion which I pursued somewhat at Yale, but then decided I didn't want to be a professional musician, but decided I did think that my milieu was administration of the performing arts. I hung around musicians. I made the master tapes for the Aspen Music Festival in 1975 and 1977 and met a lot of the musicians who were young then and very famous today, like Itzik Perelman and... Pincus Zuckerman and the Emerson String Quartet. Uh, so it, they guided me to my decision to make music an avocation rather than a vocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, explaining to me that you are very likely to have more fun making music as an amateur than as a professional. That makes sense. So I thought, okay, maybe that's it. And I went back to management school to train to be a manager, I thought, in the performing arts business. Back then, my dream job was to be the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera. Hey. Because I'd also fallen in love with opera in in college. Known as a big opera lover. And classical music Mm -hmm. and and continued to play the piano, uh, classical piano. So when I went to New York, that was my sort of dream job uh, out there. I wasn't sure exactly where I was going to land in the performing arts business. But in the meanwhile, what do I do? Well, I go work in a wine store while I'm figuring it out. Sure. And so I did. And uh, a lady whom I've gotten to know who's... Very interesting figure in the arts in uh, New York, who happened to be the neighbor of uh, my uh, friends of my parents, called me and said, you know, I know you're interested in wine. You hop over to Christie's because they need someone to catalog and handle the wine. Because my protege just finally got his job in the mail department at the William Morris Agency. (laughs) So that's left to open a vacancy at Christie's. You go... They're trying to do their first wine auction. I said, that is right up my alley. This was their first wine auction. So you were there at the ground floor. The ground for the U.S. Okay. 
Christie's was uh, trying to get auctions started in the U.S. Mm-hmm. because Michael Broadbent, probably the world's most famous wine expert and wine auctioneer, yes, certainly back then had been conducting auctions since 1966 okay. in London. And what was happening is he was starting to bring collections of wine from the U.S. over to London for sale, and the wine was being purchased by Americans and shipped all the way back across the Atlantic. Not so good for the wine. And it re- yes, and not so easy for the people either. Right. No, no, of course. So we thought this is a little bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, there should be auctions in the United States. So Christie's was trying to put the first one together, and I went over, and after a thirty-second interview, I was hired on a per <laughs> hourly basis. <laughs> you must have been be dressed the- nicely. Thirty seconds. Oh, like, I recall okay. borrowing a sport jacket. <laughs> <laughs> And so there I was at Christie's as wine cataloger and wine handler. Uh, And and very quickly, the job at Christie's sort of took over what I was doing at the retail store and even looking for another performing arts job because it was was so fascinating. Handling ancient bottles of wine, seeing them, if very, very lucky, having the opportunity to taste some of them was just up my alley. Wow, how exciting. Well, we need to find out more about your life when we come back from this break we're going to talk about auctioneering talk about your vintning that's a word i think i just made up vintning vintnering venturing vin, vin, venturing i'm just going to make up words for the rest of the day lauren we're not we're not speaking english anymore we're going to speak auctioneer we'll be back with more of judge napa valley show right after these messages la, 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 la. Everyone's a Finkel friend on Judd's Napa Valley Show. And now, back to the return of Judd's Napa Valley Show with me, Lauren Mole, Judd Finkelstein, and special guest, Fritz Hatton. Now he's a pops in all the land, let Paul give that man a hand. He's the best of all the auctioneers. $45 bid and all the bidder, all the bidder, will they give me 50, make a 50 bidder, all the bidder, will they give me 50, who the 50 dollar bid? That was not Fritz Hatton. But it very well could have been. Our guest today is legendary auctioneer, vintner, musician, Fritz Hatton. Thanks for being here today, sir. It's always a pleasure to see you. You, you uh, could do that, right? Well, uh, actually, I don't auction that style. The For that, you have to go to a different school. You don't do the cattle auctioning? Uh, no, I don't. And actually, I've, not, I've never been trained to, to, to go that fast. I uh, was trained at Christie's as an auctioneer when yeah. I was there during the 80s and was asked to become an auctioneer. And I think they thought I, it's kind of a knack in a way, you know. They uh, tapped me on the shoulders. We think you ought to train up as an auctioneer. So would you please report to Room 101 and <laughs> that through it? our in, in-house uh, training course, which I did. But, of course, the Christie's, the old English style, hmm. is very straightforward and, and rather sort of stiff. Can and, you give me a little bit? Well, it's sort of in twenty thousand dollars, twenty thousand now, twenty two thousand, twenty four thousand to the lady in the pink dress, twenty four thousand, twenty six thousand, twenty six thousand. Why twenty eight thousand on my right at twenty eight thousand, twenty eight thousand now thirty thousand. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thirty thousand dollars. 
50,000? Your Majesty. Any more? Yes. 50, 30,000? Selling then at 30,000. Sold. $30,000. So that was the, you know, the, the style back then. And, and any <laughs> variance uh, caused us to have our knuckles wrapped. Gotcha. And so where did your style that you, you have a very animated style. I mean, you hoot, you holler, there's some little screaming, a little singing. Sometimes you're putting on costumes. I mean, you are working that crowd. Was this just a style you developed on your own, the Fritz Hatton style? of? Well, it really is. I mean, I've never had further auctioneering training. Mm. I, it's evolved over time, particularly as I did conducted more and more charity auctions. And that's really a totally different kettle of fish because you've got to make it go in a charity auction. The commercial auction is very mechanical. You have bids you've received already, and you can kind of follow the roadmap. But a charity auction, you have to get the audience going. You're starting with no bids pre-received. So you have to be animated. And so I've evolved kind of my own style uh, my own shtick, as it were, over the last, well, three decades. Yeah. I did my first charity auction in 1983, interestingly, on the West Coast. So I sort of grew up as, a, even though I was based in New York then, I grew up as a charity auctioneer on the on the West Coast, yeah. particularly uh, involving wine auctions. Wine is really what I know, and wine is such a great vehicle. Let's jump there. Let's jump for to a charity you. auction. Let's jump to your life as a wine auctioneer. So you came out here in the early 90s, I believe, to Napa Valley, to, to, at the auction Napa Valley. Correct. Uh, actually, during the 80s, I was a Sonoma auctioneer. Oh. I did the auctions over there. Oh, okay. Other Christie's team, Michael Broadman and all, were doing the, the Napa auction. So mm-hmm. I was Sonoma. And, of course, I did not, adopted the Sonoma sort of uh, uh, this, this, this Sonoma mindset of, oh, you know, we're informal over here. We're not as fancy as those right. snobby Napa people. We let our hair down. We dress comfortably. And, oh, let's just go and have some fun. So that was that's where I was in the 80s. But in 92, I was Well, asked, that had to inform your style a little bit because well, that it, is your... Yes, it did. Yeah. It, it did. It was very much the opposite of a buttoned-up auction in New York mm-hmm. where I was doing all manner of auctions. Prince, American Decorative Arts, whatever needed to be done, I was on the auctioneer's roster. So I wasn't doing just wine, which actually we did in Chicago during the 80s because we were never able to get a license for New York. So, yes, you, you sort of loosen up and you, you see the people <laughs> respond to little quips and, and jokes and the, the banter and uh, between the auctioneer and the, and the audience. So in 92, Paula Cornell, who I'd gotten to know because she attended some events in Sonoma, was the chair that year. She asked me to come over and be one of the auctioneers. I said, well, sure. Mm-hmm. I just moved to San Francisco after working in the Far East for Christie's for a couple of years. And so and to, actually to go on musical sabbatical, to go back and take piano lessons, study piano and travel. I was still footloose and fancy free, but I continued to do charity wine auctions. So that moved me to Napa and to a kind of a bigger and more serious wine auction sphere. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you haven't looked back. You've become the guy here. I'm curious, you know, you now live here in Napa Valley and you do auction Napa Valley, premier Napa Valley and several other charity wine auctions within the community where you live and you know people and you seem to know usually most of the people at these events. Does that well, here it is. I mean, it's your job and people know it's your job to squeeze every 
last possible dollar out of the crowd to benefit whatever charity is being benefited. But since you know these people too, does that ever get a little awkward? Because you do call people by name. You'll say, you know, hey, Stephen there, why don't you open up your wall a little fatter? I know you can afford it. You know, that type of thing. Do you ever get any blowback for that type of... uh well, I, I try to be careful about that because I don't want to take the last dollar. Yeah. If I take someone's last dollar, they won't come back to the event next year. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure I, I ask them to stretch, but I don't ask them to experience really a, a lot of pain in the end. And knowing them, I think I, I, I have a little bit of sense where to you know where to stop. Okay. When enough is is enough because there's got to be a good feeling at an auction. Uh, it's got to be fun. Uh, the event won't have a long history if it's not right. fun and there's a good feeling. So I, I try to make sure that, uh, that the bidders have a good feeling in the end about, uh, about what they've done. And, and I think you do a good job. And that's why you are asked time and time again to, to MC and host and auctioneer these, these events. But I was just curious, you know, it seemed like it could be awkward asking people, you know, to keep it going, to keep the money flowing. For me, it's actually easier. Yeah. Because I don't, uh, n- uh, well, I auction before groups uh, whom, you know, half the audience I may know, uh, say here in Napa, but then mm-hmm. I'll do auctions uh, in new venues. I'm going to do one in Rochester, New York that I've never done before next mm. year, and I'll know maybe a half a dozen people in the audience. I'll, I'll get there a little early and try to get to know some of the members of the board yeah. so I have some faces to, some, some, some few people to lean on gently. But there I'm walking into the unknown. Mm-hmm. So it's a little trickier and riskier when you go to press someone that you don't know. I suppose so. Is that one of the tricks of the trade that you really need to do your homework? Maybe when you go to one of these new cities, you don't know a whole lot of people. Is there some homework you can do? You say the board, can they point out some folks that might be your big bidders for you to go to? Or how does well, that Well, they, they can point the them crowd? out. Uh, I don't really know how, how they will behave mm-hmm. uh, in as, as bidders. I may know they're yeah, important. I'll never forget an auction I did once in in the south and uh two very well-dressed ladies in their 70s were pointed out dripping in massive amounts of jewelry (laughs) and i danced around them in that auction for the entire night and they never spent a penny so you just you don't (laughs) you don't you know you you don't know so it, it keeps you on your toes it's uh it's actually kind of refreshing for me to wade into new situations, uh, new audiences. It keeps me uh, on my toes. Uh, and also, you know, I'm all concerned with being overexposed here in Napa. If uh, you see me at too many events, well, it's that's maybe not so 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 good either. So I try to spread it out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the events always seem to be successful, so that speaks somewhat. Uh, just the other night, did you not? Were you not the auctioneer for the for the hospital gala? Was that, yes, yeah, Saturday I night. Heard, I heard that brought in multiples of millions. I, I don't recall the exact figure, but it was an amazing night. It turned out to be a really good night. It got a little hard to predict because I saw the list of people who were there, some of whom uh, I knew, but it was a it, pretty familiar local crowd for the most part. I thought, okay, are they going to be tired of this event of uh, you know having to, uh, to 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 you know cough up donations again with, in a similar environment? Is this is this going to be tired? And it turned out to be a wonderful 
event with a really good feeling and a nice atmosphere, well-organized, follow the timeline. Great. And much stimulated by a very generous and seemingly spontaneous to me (laughs) (laughs) gift of a million dollars to the hospital by Stan and Patty Teeterman. Wonderful. So that really lit the fire under under the event. And yes, I feel very fortunate that I was able to be part of that event. And I, I hope I did whatever I could to make to ask people to stretch a little bit more. It sounds like you did. I mean, there's, it's almost a joke here in Napa Valley about how many events there are, charitable galas and auctions and fundraisers. I mean, pretty much every weekend, it seems there's something. So obviously, you can't do them all. You do several, which is wonderful. Do you have any personal passions that draw you towards certain the, the certain ones that you do um, end up being involved in? I think what draws me to the events, obviously, I, I only really want to do wine-related events. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I add value from the get-go, just because I know a lot of the wines. I pronounce most of the names correctly <laughs> from experience, so I seem like I know what I'm talking about. But beyond that, I think what drives me is actually the passion of the uh, uh, of the members of the organization who are its most prominent supporters. Uh, I do uh, auctions for medical charities, for educational charities, for musical charities. Mm -hmm. And I do try to condition people or have people understand that if you have X, an auction item, it's going to achieve one level of uh, return for uh, an an arts charity, another level for an educational charity, and yet another level for a medical charity. And, And so I that takes a little bit of work to get people to 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 understand that. So the result, my interest and in the result relative to the the nature of the charity ha, um, has to do with the, with the passion uh, and positive feeling of, of of the supporters. I love working with passionate people. Hey, that's a good enough reason. I mean, the charities are all good. I mean, I've never seen you. Uh, you know, MC or, or host of, or put up an auction, you know, to let's destroy the rainforest. These people are really passionate about getting rid of that rainforest down there. So obviously your heart is in the right place. Let's talk about the wine because you are a vintner as well. We've mentioned it. But let's, let's, let's get into it. How, how did you jump from working with wine and selling wine as an auctioneer to actually making wine? Well, I was born of a, of a, well, it came, it, out of music, love for classical music, and a great friendship with John Colmsgard uh, here in the Valley, to whom I was introduced in 92 when I did the first Napa auction. I think Paula Cornell at all said, oh my gosh, here's someone who sometimes sings on the sidewalk and plays <laughs> piano all the time, and Talk we've got to find someone else who likes classical music to introduce him to. Yeah, yeah, that's the guy. So I was introduced to John and Maggie Konsgaard, and it was uh, almost as if we were tw- twins separated at birth. Mm, mm, great uh, we feeling. just had so much fun, and I was on musical sabbatical, working only part-time, helping a friend export California wine to Europe. Uh, so we had a lot of wonderful times making music and drinking great wine together. And after the end of the musical sabbatical, which went was supposed to be one year, but ended up being three and a half years. And it shows. I've heard you uh, tickle those ivories. <laughs> I still try to keep, keep the digitals moving. 
John asked to say, do you want to make a little bit of red wine together? And it really came out of the blue. I never thought I would be a vintner, but it was uh, the great friendship with John and the many moments shared making music and also drinking great wine and knowing what a great winemaker John was. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, pretty much well, hands down. Well, yes. I mean, what are you talking about? Well, it was one barrel of wine. One to start it. Well, that's an easy. <laughs> that's yeah. an easy yes. Like Twenty-four cases, and no of course, biggie. a couple of months later, the call came. Well, how about you know twelve barrels of wine in the mm. next vintage, and let's kind of get into this. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well, I can, I can afford to be your partner in that. And then it went to thirty barrels of wine. And meanwhile, I'd gone back to Christie's to run the wine department, having decided that wine really was my thing. So it was really only in 1995 that I started to work full-time in wine. Okay. Uh, back in commercial wine auctioneering. And then uh, as John's partner in the uh, project that became to know, that became to be known as Arietta. We ultimately named Arietta because we had to have a musical name for of it. Of course. Uh, it was a little bit of a uh, struggle to come up with a name, but our wives pointed us to our music books, and that's where we found Arietta, the name of the last movement of the last Beethoven piano sonata, which is such an inspirational Ah. piece of music, which serves as an inspiration for the ultimate fine wine making. I mean, it's it's an innovative, forward-looking, ethereal, extraordinary, complex piece of music which is a great inspiration for for winemaking so anyway there it was it was really music that drew me in and a great friendship of course that that drew me into becoming a um a vintner that's beautiful wonderful to draw inspiration from that source we're getting a little short on time and a couple things i want to talk to you about but if folks wanted to experience your arietta wine obviously there's arietawine.com a-r-i-e-t-t-a wine.com are there places they could go is arietta a place folks could visit how, how do folks get your experience well in uh napa restaurants there are a fair number of restaurants that carry uh the Arietta wines were right. only 3,000 to 3,500 cases. So yeah. we're small. We're not tiny. I mean, this is not a hobby. So Napa restaurants, go to the website, ariettawine.com, sign up for the mailing list. Mm. We still sell most of the wine direct to consumer, That's the way but to do it. you can find it on occasion in top retail stores, but not dependably. So if you want your regular supply, go to the website and, and sign up. Once you sign up, you're welcome to call us or email us and request a by appointment only tasting. Gotcha. Or attend any one of the events where you're the auctioneer because you always seem to have some of your own wine in there. So on behalf of the community, thank you for those donations of your wine. Well, you're very welcome. <laughs> How can I not? Now, I, I I know you're a savvy dude. You get out in the world and you do interviews. You're in front of people all the time. I'm going to ask you something now. I don't know if you have ever been asked this. And be, on, be honest, but only if you feel like you want to answer. If you don't want to answer, just don't answer. But I'm going to come out and ask you this. Fritz Hatton, do you go nuts for donuts? <laughs> Oh, are they Krispy Kremes? Oh, buttercream yeah, bakery. Buttercream. So, well, uh, where are my daughters? Because uh, we they used to make me stop on the driving way. Is there one there that looks appealing it, to you at the moment? Well, oh. Fritz, I'm so sorry, but there is no Krispy Kreme here in Napa. 
Well, you know, that's maybe an Eastern affectation, but this, ah. you know what? The sugar-coated here. This, All right, there this, you go. That is the, the glaze. Sugar the glazed apple spice donut. glazed. As you nibble on that, would you mind giving me, I'm going to give you your choice, either a musical piece that is inspired by this, perhaps a wine pairing you would enjoy, or maybe what would the, the winning bid sound like for that donut coming from you, the auction? That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear from Fritz Hatton. The winning bid? Yeah, yeah. How would you react to the winning bid for this donut? How would you coax that last bid for this donut? You know, if you are the successful bidder for this sugar-coated apple spice donut, you will be given a bottle of 40-year-old Calvados. Perfect to drink with a donut. So let's try it at 60 cents, 80 cents, one, one dollar, a dollar 20 here, dollar 40, dollar 60, dollar 80. Yep. Lauren's been a dollar 80, two dollars now, yep. two dollar 20, 40, yep. 60, 80, three dollars, three to ten dollars. I love a preemptive bidder, ten dollars now at ten dollars. Judd, are you done? I'm done. Judd, you're never done. No, 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 no. Come on back. Let's not lose you. Ten dollars to Lawrence, but just one more, one more, Judd. Just one more. I'll take ten fifty. Ten fifty. Ten fifty. Then now, Lauren, how about eleven? Eleven dollars. Oh, is he still with me? Eleven dollars. Uh, sorry, truly really out. Fifteen dollars. Oh, no, Lauren, I won't let you bid against yourself. We are an honest operation here. You know what? It's a charity. I'll take that higher bid. A fifteen dollars, incredibly generously bid by Lauren. Sold fifteen dollars, and here's your bottle of old Calvados to enjoy with this apple spiced, sugar coated, buttercream bakery donut enjoy that i'd be happy to share that bottle with you lauren and now it's time to play everyone's favorite party game here on judd's napa valley show this is madeline uh now we are going to go through this quite quickly fritz hatton you know how this game works we fill in the blank and judging by what you just did this is going to go quickly so here we go i need a noun uh, mouthful of donut i need a noun yeah, <laughs> bathing suit bathing suit Boing. Oh, please, Lauren. <laughs> We're on the air. A geographic location. Anywhere. Mm. Havana. Havana. A decade from history. When you would have liked to have been in Havana, let's say 1950s. All right. An adjective. A descriptor of some sort. Shocking. Shocking. Another adjective. Sober. Sober. <laughs> it's not going to be Lauren after that Calvados. Uh, another adjective. Bizarre. Ooh. Bizarre. Another adjective. I've been accused of being loud. Loud. And the name of a person in this very room. Uh, Lauren Mole. Lauren Mole. Okay, Fritz, we're done with this. What I did earlier today is I went on the uh, Toot Sweet Social Club website this morning, and I know you've done some work with them. We're going to have those oui, folks oui. In, the, uh, in the studio next week hearing about what they do. So from Tootsuite.com, this is a description of you from when you appeared, and you've just rewritten it via this Mad Libs. Are you ready? Here we go. The enthusiastic Fritz Hatton is widely acknowledged as the foremost bathing suit auctioneer in Havana. <laughs> Fritz, you're la you can laugh out loud. This is radio. Okay. And has been conducting wine auctions since the early 1950s when he helped launch Christie's Wine Department in the U.S. All right, it's been a little longer than you told us on the air. Most of us in the wine industry know Fritz for his incredibly shocking, sober, and bizarre character. <laughs> but few of us have had the pleasure of experiencing his skills at the piano. When away from the auction rooms or the winery, Fritz pursues his loud music hobby, <laughs> performing recently with pianists Garrick Olson, Emmanuel Axe, and the soprano Lauren Mole. Fritz, it's been a pleasure having you here today. 
Thank you, John. I'm looking forward to more events with you in the near future. This is Lauren Mole speaking for Judd's Napa Valley Show, a Gil Lamar production. Judd's Napa Valley Show.